Welcome to the Legal Synthesis Podcast, a place where we explore the developments in law, finance and technology and how they influence each other. My name is Nirmal Bhansali. And I'm Sandesh Atyam. Okay, Sandesh, what's the topic and who's the guest for this episode? Nirmal, so today's topic uh, is about understanding financial inclusion and how fintech allows for financial inclusion. Our guest today is Benny Chug. Hi, I'm Benny Chug. I work with Dwara Research. And our mandate at Dwara Research is to ensure financial inclusion, which we define as suitable access to all financial services for each individual and each enterprise in the country. I work with a practice called the Future of Finance Initiative, which looks at the consumer protection issues arising out of digitization of finance and how those could actually arrest the speed of inclusion and Of course, the natural conclusion of that analysis is then to design processes that help erase those bottlenecks and improve the scope of financial inclusion on digital media. Okay, so Nirmal, tell me, uh, before you edited this episode, what did you think financial inclusion meant? So my interest in financial inclusion really is just from this one project I submitted in law school last year, where... I think our conclusion also was that as long as you spread internet a lot more and give people more mobile phones, they'll eventually start using UPI and different versions of mobile banking. As long as that's done, then you are including all of these people. Yeah, man, to be fair, even that was that was my idea as well. And until I had this episode with her, until I had, got in touch with her and, you know, did research for this episode, I never really thought about this topic in so much depth. And now I realize that there is actually a lot of depth to this topic and there are so many facets of it, which we generally don't think about. That seems like it's going to be a valuable episode. So let's just get started. If you ask an average person what they think financial inclusion means, the intuitive answer would be that of access. They would normally say that if everyone has a bank account, then everybody is financially included. That's what even I thought. A few years ago, that's what even experts in this field thought. As years went by, researchers observed that even though people were given free bank accounts and zero balance accounts, a lot of people weren't actually using them. This is called low intensive margin. In financial inclusion terms, the measure of access to financial services is called extensive margin. Whereas the extent to which people utilize these services is called intensive margin. In all these years, we seem to have been doing a good job in providing access in many ways. By mandating opening of bank branches in unbanked areas, by licensing multiple NBFCs and microfinance institutions, and by making giant leaps in technology such as enabling access through Aadhaar and UPI. While there are still structural concerns to address such as the digital divide and the gender divide, Overall, we seem to have been doing a good job on extensive margin. So the access to financial services really refers to extensive margin. If people wanted to access services, do they have it or not? And of course, that's the first big barrier to financial inclusion, right? Providing, uh, especially in a country like India, given its demography, given its topography, given the challenges of literacy and, you know, uh, just the cost of providing financial products. Access was a huge challenge, and therefore extensive margin was also a parameter that we were not doing pretty well on. I think that problem is kind of uh, 
resolvable or is in the striking distance of being resolved uh, there's been a lot of progress made uh, there are the pnjdy numbers of course the official numbers of the state the number of bank accounts open and one has to go look a little bit into the hood actually how many of those are first time bank accounts right and there again there are issues of digital divide where we see that the reach for males is much easier than women and therefore women's ownership of bank accounts still lags that that of males but uh, on the extensive margin side on the access side i think we are doing better uh, where we are really wanting is the intensive margin and very quickly what do i really mean by intensive margin is that you know how frequently are people actually using the financial products that they have access to right so if people voted with feet then you know it's really the test of the quality of financial services that you're providing to the people right and that's where we see that our intensive margins are quite low even if i want to do a broad brush you know 50% of households might have a life insurance and i'm saying at the household level right so it's not even to say that every individual in that 50% has a life insurance and from what we know from the data that uh, actually quite a significant amount of people are underinsured so even if you were insured your insurance is not likely to cover a lot of things or is not likely to cover the full monetary value of your life if there were such a thing right and if i did the same analysis for credit i'd understand that almost and this is going by the cmi latest data we have a small policy brief uh, from the household finance team at wara research and um, that data tells us about 50% people have an active credit loan and while these might seem comparable okay 50% households have an insurance 50% have a credit uh, an active loan it is quite interesting to kind of remind ourselves that credit is it's just an active credit right so you could take multiple credits during a month during a year you could take up multiple loans but that's not necessarily of an insurance product right so an active credit or an active loan is not necessarily comparable to people having an insurance product and even if i were to break down that a little bit i'd actually see that local shopkeepers local kirana stores are actually the first port of call for a lot of rural households and banks are second by a significant distance right so about 20 to 22% people actually go shopkeepers and this is mostly you know in the flavor of delayed payments that can i pick my ration today but pay you 15 days later right and those deferred payments are really not thought of as credit and if they were then this number would skyrocket quite a bit but it's really on those networks uh, those social ties that credit is being uh, allocated and banks are like a 13% rural household so that is the intensive margin problem that though we have access to let's say a bank account a pnjdy and we're doing our best to provide communication for sms there is a significant gap that we're not able to address somewhere in the entire institutional architecture that we've created the consumers needs are still not being met by formal finance and that that's kind of you know coming through in the uh, recurring choices of informal sources that they keep making over formal sources and mutual funds are basically dismissal right i mean you your i think under 5% of households have any investments in mutual funds whatsoever so i think that says a lot about 
the interaction that people are having with formal finance and though the bank account was supposed to be a gateway the rest of the process the big learning of the last 20 years is that the rest of the process is not automatic right uh, just providing access to a bank account doesn't mean that actually financial inclusion will follow benny calls this a crisis of information and imagination it is a crisis of information because providers do not know what the consumer wants they are still experimenting with regular emis and term loan products or insurance products and it is a crisis of imagination because we are stuck at optimizing operational costs of providing suitable financial products of reaching the last mile and gauging the pulse of the consumer the rbi household finance report is a good place to understand these needs india still reposes a lot of confidence in gold property and cash equivalents such as fixed deposits and provident funds the reason we hold on to these idiosyncrasies is because of the safety of liquidity that they offer and also due to lack of suitable alternatives from the work dwara research has done they found four significant problems in relation to access first was a lack of awareness a lot of participants did not even know that they were given insurance under a state welfare scheme second due to this lack of awareness they were making bad financial decisions such as substituting insurance with a credit product for instance some participants ended up taking a loan to pay for hospital bills instead of buying an insurance policy third even if they wanted to enter the financial system they did not find suitable products and finally there was a general lack of trust in the financial sector the third kind of problem that we are facing when it comes to you know why aren't people taking up products or this galvanization toward uh informal credit for instance not a lot of and chit funds right it's it's both of an insurance plus a savings plus a credit product right and none of us fi- formal financial folks have been able to design a product that performs all three functions the way chit fund does right so there there are very interesting lessons and the third one there is that often these uh kind of informal sources are less intimidating right so there was one paper that we did long back it was barriers to basic banking and where i think the big uh, barriers that people faced were all the jargons and all the disclosure forms for someone who's not literate reading a disclosure form or even signing one and it can be so intimidating or just approaching the branch can be so intimidating so how do we then derive lessons from people's lived context and basically not just design the product for uh, you know their lived context but also how it is supplied how they how they can access or you know how the grievance redress can be if all those things can also be made approachable less intimidating i think there's a strong uh, there's a long lens action that we have to go on the sounds and i think the fourth is the whole question of trust and that becomes very important right so for instance when we are buying an insurance product we do not necessarily the kind of time it might take you know if just saying cashless the hospital that i'll end up visiting will that honor that cashless commitment or not or for instance what happened in the earlier rspby right a lot of hospitals they stopped kind of uh, honoring the rspby insurance because the state had not cleared their debt right so when people don't when they know they have a product like that's a big barrier crossed when they are willing to use the product big barrier crossed and then the product doesn't work right and similar is the case for digital payments we did like a qualitative study way back now in 
where people uh, where basically you know people were actually duped of their money there were uh, fraud calls and people impersonating as bankers asking them for their uh, atm pins etc people on the other end being gullible uh, actually ended up providing their atm pins and all they knew was that your eight months long savings had been withdrawn in a swipe right and after that that person's response was pretty simple that hey i only trust my pocket now i don't trust the bank right so there are there are these trust kind issues where people are willing to trust the product and then the product doesn't deliver or the redress is unnecessarily complicated or you know the timings are so off that it doesn't make sense for the person to actually wait for the product to deliver in those again i think uh, we see people retreating from formal finance so there are a couple of issues that go just beyond a preference for liquidity or behavioral preferences it's really the product not either being sensitive to people's immediate needs or their immediate constraints and i think those are the kind of challenges that are interesting for providers to solve i mean uh, at the risk of sounding very insensitive to the issue so maybe that while i understand that there is an awareness problem there is a process problem there is a trust problem i think uh, the, uh, is is it fair to say that there is also an onus on the person who is buying this product on the person who is trying to enter into the formal financial system because these risks exist with irrespective of class or social status these risks exist with everyone who is in the formal financial system while we see that there are certain benefits of being in part of the formal financial system is it fair to expect this kind of um, awareness and circumspection from the person who avails these products i do not think that the onus is on the consumer and i'll be very very honest so come to think of it right uh, designers of financial services are better aware Uh, and they have a better understanding of what the product can or can't do. And I, with all my degrees and all my guff about financial inclusion, will not understand how actuaries work. I do. I just do not have the specialized knowledge. In that moment, when you have the caveat emptor approach, buyer beware approach, that you're buying it on your own risk, it doesn't make sense because I don't have the specialized knowledge to understand the risks that you're talking of. how can you then categorize consumers and say listen this is a 55 year old person there's no point giving them a home loan it's just an added liability right so how do you then at the point of sale make that decision looking at the person's circumstances that what is kind of relatable and what is suitable for them given their financial circumstances so not all the onus is on the provider but it's a long value chain that's creates the entire financial system right and along those financial systems how can we have conduct obligations on for actually providing those products so that the final consumer doesn't make a bad choice on account of information asymmetry there are generally two kinds of people who recommend financial products there are financial advisors and mutual fund distributors currently financial advisors also perform the role of a distributor to an average customer this distinction between who is a financial advisor and who is a distributor is not very visible since customers generally wouldn't want to pay for advice they are more likely to go to someone who wouldn't charge them in this case it would be a distributor but the incentives for an advisor and a mutual fund distributor are very different an advisor's incentive is to keep the best interest of the client in mind whereas the incentive for the distributor is to sell the product 
One way of addressing this conflict of interest is by fintech companies using algorithms and data analytics to recommend products suitable to the customer. But issues such as who is running the algorithm, how is it operating, and a general lack of transparency arises. The challenge here really is to incentivize ethical behavior. Recently, the Securities and Exchange Board of India brought an amendment to the Registered Investment Advisors Regulations. This amendment mandates that a clear distinction must be made between an investment advisor and a mutual fund distributor. This now ensures that the conflict of interest doesn't arise for an investment advisor. To be able to maintain this distinction, there has to be a high degree of standardization and an enforcement capacity to make the whole process transparent and credible. So yeah, I mean, this is the this is the point I wanted to uh, make as well. So I'm sure you would have heard this from others also. The, if you put all the owners of awareness and fair play and ethics on the provider, naturally the cost of the product increases. Whereas unless the, all the stakeholders, the regulator, the customer, and the provider equally share the owners of ethics, wouldn't the wouldn't the system as a whole benefit more people? I am going to say this with a big caveat that I'm saying it out loud for the first time here on the show. So this approach might have a lot of loopholes. But the more I talk about this and the more I think about this, I think it's good to think of costs involved in ethical behavior or costs involved in awareness as a public good. Right? When you start doing that, then that means that the costs are borne by regulators slash government slash a fund that's created from the industry where everybody pegs in equally or whatever is the proportion in which they want to contribute, like those things can be arrived at. The details of it can be arrived at, but having a fund which is separate from this perimeter of, you know, the value chain, which which is which basically operates at, a, at an arm's length distance to kind of insulate it from all kinds of conflicts of interest, right? And then when you have that fund, that's the fund that goes into kind of either creating awareness, or, you know, whatever pathways that you want to create to solve these problems. Um, if it has to be rewarding VCs, uh, rewarding, you know, wealth advisors, whatever it is. But I think there is some, some lesson here. If we look at the VC model, if we look at the financial advisor model, we do understand that there is not enough in the value chain for these people to be compensated for ethical behavior. I think that problem is becoming increasingly clear, right? And uh, either we allow them to do other things, or you know, there are there there has to be some way of monetary compensation. And the uh, the alternative that I can think of is really thinking of some bits of monetary compensation as a public good where everybody chips in, and then that money is really used to kind of create this system. One is that. Second is of course having a very sensitive grievance redress mechanism. If you have that, then what happens is that you're very alive to the complaints that are coming as a regulator. And as a regulator, you're able to surface recurring issues. And it's almost like real-time rules and regulations, right? A lot of people, when they complain that actually this was not a bank account that we were sold, it was a mutual fund, then the regulator takes an action and says, you cannot do this, this is not allowed. The other option is, actually they're not mutually exclusive, but there are really two pathways to address this problem, a really sensitive grievance redress that uh, is real time almost and is active. And second is of course, 
thinking of it like a public good and seeing how much of the cost can be internalized in the system without necessarily externalizing them on the consumer for a developing country like india with limited resources the government at any given point will have to choose between redistribution and investing in building essential public infrastructure striking this balance is something seasoned policy makers and economists have always argued about while having a fund for awareness and ethical behavior with contributions from all stakeholders may not be the most sustainable long term solution it can certainly bring about a big push to develop a version of self regulation good redressal mechanism and better understand where the incentive problems arise from whether this is a good enough trade off is something only time will tell a version of the incentive problem underlying throughout this discussion is that of fit and suitability whether providers are designing appropriate products whether they are cost effective whether whether the distribution is ethical so on and so forth one example of this is while structuring a loan product for a farmer who receives cash only during the harvest season are they being offered an emi or is there an option to pay back based on their revenue can they bundle this with a crop insurance the larger question here is that are there enough incentives for providers to think in this manner so going back to the uh, concept of pricing and how uh, fintech brings price down does it also solve the problem of fit and suitability because now the human element is removed right so how does it address that it's quite interesting like there are a lot of promises of fintech right one is just on the operating side that it can bring the costs down which and all of these um, i'm careful to use the word promise because we still need empirical evidence to see how fintech is actually performing on these right so i cannot say that slam dunk something has definitely happened and uh, so on the operating side there is this promise that the operating costs will come down it will dematerialize a lot of points most of the service will be provided digitally so you don't have to really set up the brick mortar infrastructure etc etc on the fit and suitability side that you've asked me the promise there is that it gives a lot of alternative so right now the reason that most of us did not get the products that we needed was because uh, the financial service providers didn't really know what we needed right and now the question is that how can we expand inclusion and fintech's answer is that even if you don't have an existing relationship with a formal financial institution please give me 10 types of alternative data that could include the make of the phone that you're using uh, the places that you're going to hang out Uh, and similar alternative data things that have got really nothing to do with your finance how many times you call your mother that's apparently a very good indicator the nature of apps that you have on your phone if you have a linkedin versus if you have a tinder so if i pull this uh, in the context of credit what happens is that these are used as indicators of credit worthiness so this is your extensive problem right you're enabling access what you are asking about is also a little bit the intensive problem that does it also improve the fit and suitability so there we see that a lot of uh, experiments are happening in other jurisdictions right so for instance you have a repayment flexibility you have a pay principal only or pay interest only or interest holidays that providers are providing to kind of uh, borrowers and that is improving the outcomes and the way providers are able to gauge that is just by seeing how many rides you made this month if you were in the cab hailing uh, industry right so how many kilometers have you done and then they realize you might not be actually able to pay the full uh, 
down payment or the full loan amount of your car this month, the EMI might not be well within your reach, then they come up with real time solutions. You want to defer your payment a little bit like what credit card does that you can pay this much right now and then the remaining you can pay in the next month for some additional costs. Now, why we're not as many examples of the Indian domain of the latter type, which is the suitability type and just-in-time flexibility and modularity that fintech can offer. I understand is there are a couple of regulatory barriers there. the way uh, we define NPAs, the kind of flexibility that you know banks have or lenders have in repayment uh, flexibility is not a lot. That that is one reason why we're not seeing some of these happen. The second reason that I think we're not some of these happen is also because providers, I mean, there is still just so much appetite for getting access that there is not a lot of incentive to design that for that modularity just here. And that's especially in microfinance where repayment rates are very high, right? Default rates are very low. And sometimes those repayments come at high welfare costs. For instance, one of our older studies in Krishnagiri show that actually just to pay your JLG loans, consumers stopped consuming proteins, stopped spending on education, stopped consuming lentils, chicken, meat, uh, milk, but did not want to default on the payment. So from a provider, that information is not available. The corners of the consumer is cutting to make their payment in time. What the provider is seeing is very high success rate and very low default rate. So the idea that they could provide some flexibility does not even come to them because there is no means to understand distress. The only kind of indicator of distress that we have right now is default, right? And that's where a lot of conversation now is happening in circles like ours, which are actually engaged with financial inclusion. But can we have other indicators of distress, like pre-default indicators of distress so that providers know there's a churn happening, we might want to intervene here and provide some kind of relief or some kind of scope of negotiation or restructure. So could you explain this design concept a little further? I mean, so now that there's, this is also an information asymmetry problem, right? So now it is the role reversal that the provider doesn't know what the problem is. So, and since yeah. provider knows his product better and is in a better bargaining position more often than not, how, how do they design these products? Yeah, so I mean, some of these are just contractual, right? Right at the time of, uh, let's say, what a good contract would look like at any point if you feel there is stress, get in touch with us 10 days prior your due date and we can renegotiate. And that renegotiation process, right? And there are some providers, really small locals, that are trying to do that, uh, especially for people involved in early economy. And they actually saw a lot of uh, kind of encouraging consumer feedback during the lockdown days, right? When this kind of modularity, flexibility already existed in the when people's inventories were piling up and they were saying that money is not churning for us, our inventories are not getting We want to tap into your renegotiation option, right? So that's, and the pandemic was a natural experiment because the information asymmetry, as you call it, was very less. Everybody knew that the economy is going through. The problem occurs when you have an idiosyncratic shock, which might not affect everybody on the economy. And that's where the visibility of the provider goes down, right? And that's where other indicators like 
person approaching other banks or is this person actually going to informal um, sources for loans to be able to repay this those kinds of indicators become important and i think we need a bit more study because what the risk is we do understand that there is information asymmetry but we do have to be very aware that not every information can be provided or even should be provided because that has its own flip concerns of data protection of privacy and how that information might be used in the future right for instance surge pricing in cab hailing industry is one that is actually spoken about a lot that it's the same piece of information will you use it in an enabling way or will you use it in a discriminatory way we do not know so we'd much rather not provide you with that information so i think uh, one is just how do you get that idiosyncratic information what are the early and not too personally sensitive indicators of default that's where most of the research is i understand is happening and a couple of models are being tested of what would pre default indicators comprise and the second is when you're providing the providers with that kind of information what are the data protection obligations then that follows but just to your point of suitability i think where fintech's real opportunity lies is not only kind of designing uh, suitable products but also providing them through suitable channels that's the second important so and we're seeing a lot of, and a lot of this is just business acumen right you are a provider you do see that your bc business or your assisted model is working better than a purely digital model or where is the take up coming from the rural economy is not picking up and then you realize that's because most of them don't have smart or your uh, interface is in english and they don't understand it right so i think that's the second big uh, that suitability can be used for which is designing the right channels well so that you know the product actually reaches the consumer and it reaches them in the right form at the right time and where fintech can actually help uh definitely the digital channels but the fear then also becomes a little bit that it should not be digital only which is like five years back if we were having this conversation i think uh most of us would have said that digital is the way forward but now for the last 3 years everybody is saying that a pure digital model is not going to take off for india because we're just not there yet right so having an exception handling mechanism having some staff on the ground can actually assist people that's the kind of innovation that we're looking for so you spoke yeah. about uh, regulatory barriers or regulatory uh, roadblocks in terms of suitability and even now in terms of flexibility so what how does regulation look like currently for the what are the regulatory barriers and how does regulation look like for fintechs currently so regulation for fintech uh, there is no one uh, very well articulated regulatory posture for fintech right and that's what we try to do in our paper as well that because there is an absence of one kind of posture for fintech which is for the good i'd say that you can't really treat everything with this uh rush but what we've done is we've basically looked at it sector wise right so when you look under the hood and where are the innovations happening you see that there are almost three kinds of innovations that are happening one is how the product is offered and that's really you know a lot of aggregators coming up and a lot of platforms that offer integrated products coming up and that's just uh, innovation at the very last end of the value chain that how do you actually 
Then the second uh, kind of innovation that's happening is actually the design of the product itself, where you see that a lot of uh, some amount of flexibility or, you know, if you would have seen that if you've taken a small ticket transaction, let's say an Ola ride, then Ola will give you an option of, let's say, pay later. Right. So those are just in time products that are being offered. So there's that design level innovation happening that this is a payment product. It can be converted into a credit product. This person is a good credit risk. Let's offer them just-in-time credit. So that's the design level. Or for instance, in insurance sector, you know, the whole use of telematics and a whole uh, range of other equipment that can actually tell you the driver's behavior. And then you can actually customize the premium or actually giving Fitbits, and I'm sorry for naming a brand, but really wearable technology free with insurance products only as a means kind of understand the consumer's uh, lifestyle and you know health patterns. Those are the design level or in credit again, if you use alternative information, right? So those are just the uh, how existing products are designed differently, right? So that's almost that kind of an innovation. The third kind of innovation that we see that's happening is really a creation of new products almost, right? And they might not look very different, but actually if you see they would not have existed had it not been for fintech. And one example that comes to mind is definitely the P2P credit. So what you've really done is, it's, it's a simple concept. You've reduced search cost to zero or close, and you've brought uh, lenders and borrowers in the same way. And now basically lenders and borrowers can go, you've basically created a marketplace where none existed. It's still a credit product. <clears throat> the way it is different is that from the lender's point of view, it's a little bit of a risk product. So it has features of both like a normal credit, but there's a default risk. So, you know, it's leaning towards a mutual fund, you know, where there are some returns, some assured, it can be higher, that kind of thing. And for the lender, it's actually, a, uh, sorry, for the borrower, it's actually just a credit product, but you don't really have to prove any of your financial. So they've, made negotiation possible and they've actually made uh, origination of a different kind possible. So these are the three levels of uh, innovation that's happening. And all three levels almost attract different levels of regulation. The weakest levels of regulation that we, uh, and when I say weakest, I don't necessarily mean that there are gaps, but really the most light touch regulation that we see is at the last end of the value chain. There are web aggregators, which are really just online platforms for selling insurance products. And IRDAI has a very tightly regulated web aggregators policy, where they say how much money they can charge, they cannot advertise, they must advertise, uh, they must present products of all uh, insurers, they can't have favoritism, all kinds of you know guidelines exist there. But at the same level, the RBI does not actually regulate anybody just displaying credit products on their website, right? And there's a whole range. And I mean, the concerns are coming from different places. IRDAI has gone ahead, understood the conduct uh, risks that exist there and that, you know, if people are not given the whole spectrum of insurers, then there is a tendency to just go for the top. So it's more of a level playing field tendency that they have adopted in their web aggregator uh, guidelines. The RBI, on the other hand, has not regulated it at all. 
and I think I am just thinking out my neck uh, and thinking out loud on behalf of the regulator that that might be the key because no actual um, credit decision is made on the platform, right? So if I say that yes, this is a good credit card and I want to apply for this credit card, what that platform will do is it will just pass my lead to that company and that bank will call me back and say, hey, you expressed interest in this credit card, let's talk about it more. So almost like every regulator has taken a different stance on that level of fintech. On the second level of fintech where innovation is in the existing products itself, right? So how you arrive at the product that has changed either due to robo-advisors or due to alternative information. When innovation is happening at that second level where the product is an existing product category, but the way they, it's now being thought of or is now being put together has changed because of the data that is available. Uh, I think regulators have a tendency to kind of just look at the regulated entity. Those existing products still continue to be provided by the regulated entity. So for instance, banks and NBFCs are the only people who can actually lend or now P2P, which are again classified as NBFCs, right? So these are the only people who can actually take a risk on their balance sheet. And no matter what methodology they're using to provide that credit product, be it an alternative credit score or be it a lot of alternative information, whatever it is, that risk lies with the regulated entity itself. Okay. And I think there the tendency is to separate the technological, the, provide, uh, the service provider that provides the technological inputs from the service provider that provides the ultimate final financial product. Right. And I think most regulators there have taken the approach that it's only the regulated entity that can provide the product. What happens in the background is really the regulated entity's headache. And we don't really see a lot of regulation. So standalone alternative credit scorers in India are not regulated as of now because ultimately they feed into a bank or an NBFC, which is a regulated entity. It's almost like regulating via the regulated in some sense. And the third level is where a completely new category comes up. And I think P2P was a good example of that, right? When P2P came up, both SEBI and RBI were kind of confused as to how do they go about regulating this category? Because it seemed like equity, it seemed like loan. There was a lot of confusion. And actually, I think it is one of the few jurisdictions that has made the distinction between uh, equity crowdsourcing and loan, credit crowdsourcing, right? So the loan bit came under the RBI and very recently the equity bid has been taken care of by SEBI, right? So sometimes a new kind of an innovation comes up that doesn't exist into in the uh, kind of provided for structure. And there we've seen that regulation then comes up from scratch and then, then came the P2P regulation. And we can discuss the merits of those regulations, but that was a completely new regulatory structure that was created end to end with complete guidelines. So really, I think uh, the way the regulator is saying, uh, I would, I mean, it's almost a post-rationalization that to me, it appears that the regulators are actually looking at, are the risks completely unmitigated? If they are, then I think there's a tendency to produce regulation. But if the risks are intermediated via a regulated entity, then the tendency to regulate has been less. We have seen that technology comes with lofty promises on financial inclusion. 
It's mind blowing to see the amount of progress that has been made over the last few years. One thing that we know about technology is that when it is deployed at scale, it brings access to solutions from a few to many, but also exacerbates problems among a few to many. Well, this is not to highlight the harms of digitization. It is important that we set the framework to think about the progress that's going to be made over the coming years. The promise of fintech was that it can customize, it can meet requirements that were unmet in the past. More importantly, it was that of being more accessible and more inclusive than ever before. Progress in fintech so far has been among those that are already included, that is to say among those who are at the top of the pyramid. In order for fintech to work for the people in the bottom of the pyramid, they need to get down to the ground reality and explore consumer needs in detail, test inputs on which models are built, and be cautious regarding the gaps getting created in the process. For example, we need to ask ourselves, are we testing creditworthiness on the right metrics? Are we creating similar barriers to entry that existed before digitization? And is this truly helpful to the end consumer? While these may seem like abstract questions, finding answers to these questions can change millions of lives. Thank you for listening to this episode of Legal Synthesis. This episode was edited by Nirmal Bansali and music for this podcast by Rohan Shiva. If you like this episode, don't forget to share and subscribe.